Good morning. Today's scripture reading is 1 John 4 through 7, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, found in page 1023 in your pew Bibles, or it'll be in front, or it'll be behind me. Please stand for the wording of God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this was love perfected with us, so that we may have the confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And for, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have come from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Please pray with me as we look at God's word together. Gracious Father, what incredible truths we have sung this morning and heard from your word about a love that abides in us. And Lord, we pray as we look into your word now that your spirit would take what we have read, take what we have been singing, take what we're about to look at together and apply it to our hearts, God. To not just give us more information about you, but to change us, Lord, to transform us to be more and more like Christ. Lord, we ask it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you've been with us uh, through our first John series, we've been working our way through the letters of John since January. And uh, if you've been part of that the last few months, then the passage that you heard read a few minutes ago probably sounded pretty familiar. John has uh, been making the point often throughout his book about the importance of loving one another within the body of Christ. This is the third time he's kind of set aside time to emphasize that point for us. We heard it first in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And then he told us again in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that, you should, that we should love one another. And now in our passage, chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 21, he begins 
by reminding us that we're supposed to love one another. And he ends by reminding us, again, the same point. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. And then verse 21, And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. In fact, uh, in, in just our passage this morning, John will use some form of the word love 29 times in just these verses that we've heard. And when you take that repetition, along with the fact that John often refers to his readers as little children, uh, after a while, the phrase little children sounds less endearing and more kind of like a nagging parent reminding you for the hundredth time to clean your room. Uh, you, know, you need to clean your room today. I know. Did you clean your room yet? I'll get to it. When are you going to clean your room? I said I'll do it. And, and, you know, you need to love one another. I'll do it. I'll get to it. You need to love one another. Uh, but you know, if, if you've been part of that scenario of the, you know, whether you're the nagging parent or the uh, child who can't quite get around to cleaning the room, you know that after a while uh, in that exchange, the excuses do begin to kind of roll out. Uh, well, this isn't all my mess. I didn't get all of this out. Why am the one? Why, why do I have to pick everything up? They played with it too. After all, this is my room. I like it this way. Or for some, instead of the excuses rolling out, the guilt begins to kind of well up when we realize we've disobeyed once again. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't listen. Sorry I always mess up. Are you going to punish me? Please don't punish me. And, and the same thing can happen in our call to love one another. Sometimes we're tempted to make excuses. We hear John telling us, love one another, love one another, love one another. And it's like, I'll get to it, but then after a while, well, what if they don't deserve my love? What if they've hurt me or betrayed me? What if the reason that we're not loving each other right now goes both ways and is more on their shoulder than mine? And sometimes when we fail to love, rather than make excuses, we just simply beat ourselves up in guilt. We're weighed down by it. I've blown it again. I, I should have called that person this week. I knew I should have called that person, and I didn't do it, and now they're hurting, and I shouldn't have said those things. Uh, such a gossip. I'm so selfish. I can't believe God hasn't just struck me down and been done with the whole thing. But when John returns to this topic, he's not doing this to beat a dead horse or to make us feel more and more guilty or anything like that. He's returning to this topic to help us understand that this call to love one another, this call that is so central to what it means to have an abiding relationship with God, this call to love one another is anchored in God's love for us. He wants us to understand that what God is asking us to do comes from out of what God has done for us in his love for us. He says in verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he says the same thing in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If we're going to love one another well, if we're going to love one another as we should, we must understand that that flows out of God's love for us. His love for us makes our love for one another possible. It's what fuels our motivation to love one another, even when we don't feel like it, 
even when the other person doesn't deserve it. And it's what frees us from guilt and the fear of punishment when we realize that we've blown it again for the hundredth time in not loving our brother or sister well enough. In fact, John uh, uses pretty strong language to suggest that God's love for us is not complete in us until it has had that result, until it's extended to others and until it frees us from the fear of punishment. Notice uh, in our passage how he uses the language of completion or perfection when he talks about God's love. First in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God's love for us is meant to be extended out to others. And until that happens, his love is not yet complete in us. It still has work to do in us. And then again in verses 17 to 18, he says, by this, by abiding in God's love, pointing back to verse 16, he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, complete love, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God's love for us is meant to free us from the fear of punishment from the fear of his divine judgment. And until that's true of us, until we walk in confidence for the day of judgment, his love still has work to do in our hearts. So the message that God loves us is not some trivial, you know, message that's nice but doesn't really do anything. It's good to know. Thanks for the information. No, the message that God loves us changes everything. God's love comes to us with a mission to accomplish. And what John wants to see this morning is that this mission is complete. God's love for us is perfected in us when it's extended to others and when it frees us from the fear of divine judgment. We see that in two sections. Our our passage divides roughly into two sections. Verses 7 through 12 Uh, John shows us how God's love is perfected in us when we extend it to others, when we love one another. Uh, And that helps motivate us. It helps us overcome whatever hesitancy or excuses we might come up with when we don't feel like loving each other, when we don't feel like the other person deserves our love. Uh, And then in verses 13 to 21, John shows us how God's love is perfected in us when we have confidence in for the day of judgment, when it, his love chases away the fear of punishment when we fail. And so we'll start with the first section, that God's love is perfected in us when we extend it to others. That's his first point, verses 7 through 12. So look at verse 7 with me, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So again, John is starting in familiar territory. If you've spent time in 
in the letter of 1 John. Uh, He has already argued at length that loving one another within the body of Christ is a necessary mark of a true love for God. Uh, And so he's made that point multiple times. It's not a new idea. But here, what's new is that he anchors this idea in the very nature and character of God himself. The fact that God is love. You cannot claim to know and love God without showing his love to others. Because God is love. Now, when John says the phrase, God is love, um, it's important to note that there's a difference between saying God is love and love is God. Sometimes when we say the first phrase, God is love, we hear or think the second phrase, love is God, and they're quite different. Uh, sometimes you know, love is God as though the greatest virtue in life, the, the highest value that trumps any other belief, any other conviction, any other virtue is love. And, of course, usually what we mean by that is, is whatever we think love should mean. And so for a traditional or conservative person, love is what protects and promotes a good life. Love is the fences that we build around our children to protect them. It's the rules that we enforce to create a moral society. And sanctioning or censuring those who color outside the lines is what we call tough love. So that's what love often means for for those on the more traditional or conservative side. For a more progressive or liberal person, love is often whatever makes someone happy, whatever makes them feel good about themselves. Love means not judging or disagreeing, but accepting and celebrating everything about the other person, making sure that no one's offended, everyone feels safe. There's no longer any sense of sin unless you sin against this new law of love, then you are a hater and guilty of hell if there ever was such a thing in that view. And so so we make love whatever we want it to be, just by default. This is how we walk through our days. And, And when you get in your mind that love is God, then whatever I define love as trumps everything else. And and it's kind of like the, it's the great... You know, if you play card games, it's the trump card that you just kind of throw down. Like somebody calls a, a suit, and you're like, no, love, you got to take that back now. Love trumps everything, and, but it's, it's our own definition. And, and so we have to ask, when you read a verse like this, which not only does not say love is God, but says God is love, you have to ask, what does he mean by that here? What does John mean by the phrase God is love? What if he actually tells us what he means by it? And what if God's love for us is far more conservative than progressives want to believe in that it is inextricably bound up in holiness and morality, but far more liberal than traditionalists want to believe, more accepting and self-giving than anything we could imagine? What if God's own self-definition of love does more good for this world and creates a more holy and loving church than any of our own definitions we might come up with? And 
That's what John clarifies for us in verses 9 through 10. God's own self-definition of love. What does he mean when he says, I am love? This is what he means, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we know what God's love is. That he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So do you want to know what the love of God looks like? What it means that God is love? John's answer is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and you will see what it means that God is love. Now, of course, So often we assume that Jesus came to accomplish whatever agenda we happen to hold dear to our hearts. It's interesting. You look at some of the political baits today. Every camp claims Jesus for their own. Every camp has got some some quote or some Bible verse or some caricature that, that claims Jesus as representing their agenda. And so the question is, what did God the Father send him to do? If we understand what love means by looking at Jesus and what God sent him to do, what did he send him to do? We see two things in these verses. First, so that we might live through him. The Father sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him, that we might have eternal life through faith in Christ. So God in his love for us wants to have relationship with every single person one of us. He wants to invite us into his family, to his dinner table, to make us part of his kingdom that we might know and enjoy him intimately forever. That's his desire, that we would have eternal life. But if you think about what that means, if Jesus came to bring eternal life, that means that apart from Jesus, we're facing eternal death. That's the other side of the coin. That means that what the Bible says about sin is actually true, that it separates us from God, that our disobedience and our rebellion against God, whether that comes in small ways or big ways, it actually condemns us to God's judgment, that we're deserving of his punishment, that sin really is sinful and deserving of divine judgment. Which doesn't make God unloving. That's kind of the, the, the step we'll often take when we realize that sin is bad and the deserving of God's judgment. We think, well, God must not be loving. That's not the case. How loving would it be for God to overlook the kind of injustices and wickedness that we see in this world? And to want justice for that is not unloving, it's love in action. But when we look at, at, at this scenario, what we really see is how great God's love is for us in that this is what he was desiring and willing to rescue us from. Here we are, having broken God's law, deserving of his punishment. He didn't leave us there. Instead, he sent his son to rescue us. That is love. But how does he do that? How does he rescue us? That's the second reason that we see for why God sent his son. This one in verse 10. To be the propitiation for our sins. 
Now, we don't use the word propitiation or propitiation, however you want to pronounce it. Dorn and I have had debates about that, I think. Is, is that the word? I can't remember. Anyhow, somebody made fun of the way I said it the last time I preached on this. But what that word means is a sacrifice of atonement that bears the wrath of God in place of the one who deserves it. So think of the Passover lamb. That night when, when God's uh, destroying angel went throughout Israel as they were ready to be rescued from Egypt to strike down the firstborn in every house as a judgment on sin, and Israel, the nation, being described as God's firstborn son, the Passover lamb dies in place of the son. God's wrath is poured out on the lamb as a substitute that the son, who is in fact guilty, can actually go free. And the same thing is what Jesus did on the cross for us. He dies in our place, which doesn't make God less wrathful or less just. It actually exalts his justice. It says, no, sin is wicked and it must be punished. But because of my mercy, I'm going to take the punishment myself in your place. That's what God says in sending Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's absolutely incredible. Jesus pays our debt in full as our substitute. That, John tells us, that is love. That is what love looks like. Not that we loved God. Not because we deserved it. Not because we loved him first. Not because it was easy uh, or cheap. God's love cost Jesus everything. It was because of love. It was because of his grace. Through faith in Jesus, every sinner who comes to God is accepted by a holy God as his child and heir to his kingdom. That is what God's love looks like. And any definition of love that we might apply in our families, our conversations, our marriages, or wherever, any definition of love that is less holy or less merciful is a caricature at best and an offense to God and his cross at worst. This is love. God's love is both moral and merciful. It is both holy and gracious. It shows us that sin really is sinful and grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin. But John is not telling us uh, this just so we can get our theology straightened out. You know? uh, if you look at verse 11... Here's his point. Beloved, if God so loved us, if this is how God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here we see how God's love for us is what actually makes our love for one another possible. Even when we don't feel like it. Even when the other person doesn't actually deserve it. When we realize how God has loved us, what he was willing to do, not because we loved him, not because we deserved it, not because it was easy or cheap, but solely by his grace and mercy. When we realize that's the way God has loved us, we begin to run out of excuses for why we're not loving one another. 
Because God has loved me in my betrayal against him, I can love my brother or sister who has betrayed me. Because God has loved me in my indifference toward him, I can love a brother or sister who's shown indifference to me. Because God has loved me in my selfishness, I can love a friend who is really selfish. Because God has loved me at great cost to himself, I can love others at great cost to myself. It might cost me my pride. It might cost me my reputation. It might cost me money or time or emotional energy. It will cost me any claim I have to retribution. But all of this, I can freely let go of it. Because in this way, Jesus loved me. Because in Jesus, I already have everything that I need. I don't need to exact that from someone else. And because Jesus himself has already borne in himself the retribution that my brother or sister deserves for their offense against me. He didn't just die for my sin. He died for theirs too. That frees me to love. Now, that doesn't make love easy, nor does it make the sin that a friend or fellow Christian has committed against me less sinful. Some of us have been deeply hurt by fellow Christians, and that is not okay. That is not the way that the body of Christ should be treating each other. Love is not pretending that that things aren't really that bad, and I just got to put a good face on it. And try and move on. That is not what this kind of love is. The love of God does not make sin less sinful. It shows us that grace is greater than that sin. That's what the love of God does. And it's the only thing that actually allows us to be honest with the offenses either that we commit or receive and still hopeful about a relationship because it gives us what we need to deal honestly with sin and mercifully with sinners. That's what the love of God has done to us and that's what enables us to act in the same way toward our brothers and sisters. And God's love is meant to do that in us. It's meant to be extended beyond us to one another. And it hasn't completed its work in our hearts until that's true, until We are genuinely loving each other. God's love for us is perfected in us when we love one another. That's the first point John is making here. That's what makes love possible, that God has loved us. But what about when we fail to do that? What about when we fail to love as we're called to love? What if we're the reason that people are having a hard time loving Christians because of our sin and our mess? The second thing that John wants to help us understand that God's love is meant to do in us is how it also frees us from guilt and the fear of punishment when we fail to love as we ought. And so that's the second point in verses 13 to 21, that God's love is perfected in us 
when we are free from the fear of punishment. So look again, look at verse 13 with me. And when we come to verse 13, John again is in familiar territory. He's he's reassuring us of uh, our genuine relationship with God and what that looks like. It says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, that we really do have an intimate relationship with God because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So he's reminding us of several of the tests of true faith that he's already been through in the book, namely the witness of the Spirit uh, and, and confessing that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, our Savior. Real intimacy with God is Christ-centered. But notice, as he brings all of this up again, notice the conclusion that he draws from this in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. If we have this genuine relationship with God, that means we have come to know and believe God actually loves us. That's one of the... So he's he's bringing us back again to the power and truth of God's love for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this love of God for his people is once again meant to accomplish something in us, not only to be extended to one another, but now also to free us from fear of punishment when we mess up, when we sin against God and one another. So look again at verses 17 and 18. By this, by abiding in God's love, by this is love perfected or completed with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God's love for us God's love for you is meant to free you from fear of punishment on the day of judgment. That's one of the things he wants his love to accomplish in your heart. That day when we all stand before God's throne and give an account for everything that we've done, good or bad, in this life. You know, if we think about that day apart from Christ and what he's done, That's a terrifying prospect. I mean, we can go through all of the motions as though we're doing all of this, you know, the way we're supposed to, until you realize you're about to be found out. You know, if you've ever asked your children again, you know, did you clean your room yet? They say, yeah. Okay, let's go see. Well, just give me a couple more minutes. You know, imagine, you know, standing in a courtroom with a DVD playing in the background with everything you have done in your life, good or bad. It's a terrifying prospect. And, you know, we'll, we'll go easy. Just think of the last week. And, and we can simplify from there. Just think about what you've done to Christians in the last week. We're all guilty. We all mess up. None of us have arrived. We're all sinners, And yet John tells us that God's love for us is meant to give us confidence for the day of judgment. 
it's meant to free us from the fear of being punished for those sins. And it does that in two ways. There are two ways that God's love for us gives us confidence for the day of judgment. First, we have confidence before God because of our position in Christ. Our status as one who belongs to Jesus, as one whose life has been covered by the blood of the Lamb. One who has been united with Christ in his death and resurrection and who therefore, like Jesus, is in this fallen world, but who is like Jesus in that we belong to God and not to this fallen world. That takes us again back to verses 9 and 10. If, if the greatest expression of God's love for us was that he gave his son to be the, the atoning sacrifice of our sin, then abiding in the love of God for us, fellowshipping with him in his love, reminds us daily that our sin really has been paid in full. That, that all of our sin, past, present, future, Christ has covered that. He has accepted in himself the due punishment that we can be cleared of the charges. And therefore, when we stand before the throne, we don't have to fear being condemned. Because in our place condemned, he stood. That's amazing. That is the love of God. And that love frees us from fear of punishment. That doesn't mean that we can live however we want because our sins are already forgiven. You don't get it if that's your conclusion. You don't get what it costs Christ, what he's really done for you. It means that when we fail, there is grace. When we mess up, there is grace. It means that if his blood really is enough to pay for all our sins, then we need not fear. That is the confidence, first and foremost, that we have through our position in Christ. But the second way that abiding in God's love actually gives us confidence for the day of judgment is not only because of our position in Christ, but also our practice of love, actually loving one another better. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you shouldn't be afraid of being punished for doing something wrong. And the more we love God, the more we will love one another and the less we need to fear having done something wrong. It's, it's kind of like if you're driving the speed limit and you pass a, a, a police officer hiding in a parking lot, you don't need to be afraid of being pulled over for speeding. We are still, no matter, you know, we might be doing everything right and still for whatever reason we're afraid we've done something that we don't even know that we did wrong and we're going to get caught for it and so on. And that's the way we often treat God's love. That, that, you know, when I'm loving the way that I ought to be loving, I'm afraid, and, and usually because of our sinful nature, there are things that we're doing, you know, selfishness slips in there, all sorts of things. But the more we abide in God's love for us, the more that will be extended to others and the less we are worried about all of the times we mess up. So there's a practical confidence. There's a positional one that our sin has been paid for in full, but there's also a practical one that when we love each other more, we actually sin less and have less to worry about. If we are still afraid for the day of judgment, if we still fear being punished for our sins when our Lord returns, 
it shows us that God's love has not yet been perfected in us. And I imagine that's true for all of us in some way. And part of it is because we know none of us have arrived. We know that, that we, we still mess up. And, and so there's kind of a holy humility in that. But the reality is, if Christ really is enough, and if he's really at work changing my life, I don't need to be afraid of the punishment for sin because Jesus really has paid for it. And if I am, that means that God's love still has work to do in my heart. Maybe I'm not believing the gospel fully. Maybe I'm still condemning myself for sins that Jesus has already paid for. Or maybe it's because I'm not loving others practically. I'm still focused on myself instead of laying my life down for others. And and so I have this conviction whenever I mess up. But whatever our situation is, the solution is actually the same. To go once again to the Father and to abide in the love he has for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the solution for a guilty heart. That's the solution for a selfish life. We go back to the love of God that has been shown to us through sending his Son, Jesus Christ. John says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his, for he who does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So God's love for us is what motivates us to love others even when we don't feel like it, even when they don't deserve it. And it's what frees us from the fear of punishment when we fail to love because our sins have been completely forgiven in Christ. John wants you to abide in the love of God through Jesus. He wants that love to complete its work in your life, to be extended to others and to free you from guilt, free you from fear of punishment. And when that happens, we see the perfection of God's love in the life of the church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how can we look at a passage like this that calls us to love without feeling incredible uh, guilt and shame? Lord, we confess that we have not lived up to your calling. Lord, there are so many times, I think just of my own weak uh, ways that I have chosen selfishness and self-protection over self-giving love. And Lord, those can be multiplied through each of our lives. And so, Lord, we we confess that as we come before you, uh, we confess our need for your love to continue to do its work. But even as we confess that, Lord, we pray with hope and faith that your love will do that work in us. God, help us to understand more and more how you have loved us, that we might love others in the same way. 
not because we are loved in return, not because someone loved us first, but because we have been loved by you. May we lay our lives down for others. And Lord, as we reflect on what your love has accomplished through your Son, I do pray for my own heart and for every heart here that that the gospel of your grace would free us from guilt and shame, would free us from fear of punishment, so that when we love, we're not doing it to perform for you or to perform for someone else. We're doing it out of a heart that has been freed by Christ. And Lord, that is true love. So would you make this congregation uh, a people known by our love, our love for you, our love for one another? But may we never boast in that love, recognizing that we love because you first loved us. May we always boast in the love that you have for us in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.